0: I remember the rumbling, it felt like a freight
1: train, and it goes on for a while, maybe 15 Tornado tore through our small town like a giant weed whacker
0: This is Design Safe Radio, where natural hazards researchers strive to make our society more resilient to everything nature throws at us
2: Episode of Design Safe Radio, the show that talks about everything nature has to throw at us and how scientists are working to make our society more resilient. I'm your host, Dan Zahner from the Natural Hazards Engineering Research Infrastructure Network Coordination Office at Purdue University, and this is Design Safe Radio. Last time on the show, we talked with Don Lehman and Mike Motley from the University of Washington about their careers as scientists and how combining fields or even appointments can lead to a fulfilling way to do their scientific work while still providing a great home and family life. There is some actionable advice in there for whatever stage of career you're in, so if you haven't listened to it yet, go back and make sure to bring a notebook. (laughs) You're going to want to take notes. This week, we're going to dive into Don and Mike's work on tsunami evacuation structures for the Pacific Northwest, and how they're using their unique backgrounds and skills to come up with structures that will save lives when the Cascadia subduction zone finally gives way someday in the future. Enjoy the episode. Speaking of that cool stuff, your work that you're working on right now is, is pretty amazing. And uh, why don't you give us kind of the 30,000-foot view on down uh, of what you guys are working on um, testing-wise these days.
1: So you're referring to a new proposal? Well, yeah, we the, the
2: concrete-filled tube structure and, and your computational simulations <laughs> of fluid-soil interactions. Um, and, and any other projects you might be working on that we hadn't talked about before.
1: <laughs> so I would say that um, the, I, where I came from it, I've been working with uh, Charles Roder, who's another faculty member here. And uh, Charles and I have been looking at using concrete filled tubes for accelerated bridge construction. So the idea is that rather than having a reinforced concrete column, where you need to build the reinforcing cage, set the formwork, and cast the column. Um, we use the tube as the formwork and all the reinforcement, the longitudinal and the transverse reinforcement. And we have worked with students, master students, PhD students over the last uh, 12 years or so, developing connections of these concrete-filled tube columns to in particular, precast elements. So this work has been funded by WashDOT, uh, Caltrans, and also the US Army. Oh, wow. Um, and so the, the thing about a concrete-filled tube is that the tube itself is placed at the optimum location for strength, especially for flexural strength. Um, but the, the concrete fill prevents the tube from buckling. And the concrete fill provides a lot of stiffness and uh, and strength as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so, you know, we started doing some tests for WashDOT where they wanted to explore what the shear strength of a concrete-filled tube was. And the reason they were interested is because these components are used a lot for deep foundations. And if you have a liquefiable layer or um, a a some kind of lateral instability of your soil, you can end up with really large lateral forces on the pile. And so-, so When you say a
2: liquefiable layer of soil, what does that mean for, for those who may not be familiar with that?
1: So the if you look at the profile of a site, the properties of the soil change with elevation. And um, some of those properties may act like um, sort of like having uh, sand with uh, water and if you shake that, if you think about having a bath full of, or a, a um, pan filled with sand and water and you shake it, the, the water will come to the surface and the, the sand will condense and what ends up happening then is you end up with a part of your pile that essentially doesn't have any restraint because the soil is uh. providing restraint to it and just like uh sometimes you'll see after an earthquake there are these columns that where the architect built in uh masonry walls and ended up essentially cutting the the length of the column in half because the masonry is restraining the the column what ends up happening is that you that dries up the shear because of um the, the reduced length and so what you end up when having when you is talk you,
2: about shear you're talking about side to side
1: right tearing
2: about, of, a, of the material
1: right and i so if you think about having your pile which is going into the ground and um the earthquake is essentially causing the ground to move horizontally that that pile wants to move horizontally. And if you have, if the pile is restrained by the soil, it'll move with the soil and it it might not deform that much. But if you have a layer that ends up essentially disappearing, you Uh, have part of that pile that doesn't have any restraint and ends up driving up the the forces at at that small unrestrained lane. And uh, there really had not been a lot of tests on uh, these concrete-filled tubes under large shear forces. They there was some work out of Japan, tended to be on pretty small sections, you know, six inches or twelve inches, and these piles are you know four feet to over ten feet in diameter. So we uh, we worked with WashDOT, and what we ended up finding was the shear strength of those piles was two and a half times what they had in their design code. Oh wow. Right. And so there aren't that many opportunities where you get to come in and say to a design engineer, actually, I'm going to give you a design equation that's two and a half times what you were using originally. So obviously, they were very happy with the research. <laughs> yeah. But when Mike and I were working with a student together looking at the demands of a tsunami put on a bridge, I just sort of wanted to say, I wonder what a tsunami demand is relative to an earthquake. Load. Mm. and you know essentially what we found was that the tsunami made the earthquake look like nothing
2: really it like,
1: yeah it was like noise and so i started thinking about well gosh if, if you know with earthquake engineering we depend on yielding of the system to dissipate energy to to change the period of the structure and to change the demand on the, the structure and i won't go too much into that but you can't do that in a tsunami you you can't you can't think that um that you're going to allow the structure to yield and that'll dissipate energy and reduce the loading of the tsunami. yeah
2: tsunami's so just going to rip it apart right <laughs> so
1: so what we started thinking you know the the concept of some of these evacuation structures had been well let's just build something really big and really strong and when you start thinking about big and strong you think about a structural wall and I've done a lot of structural wall testing over my career. And you know, what I realized was, well, all you're really doing is asking the tsunami to increase the demand on your building because you just put up this huge wall that it's going to um, push against. Wouldn't it make more sense if we had a, a more open structure so that the water could flow through the structure, and we had something that was holding up the structure that was really strong? And so it made sense that- Especially we,
2: because you know which direction the water is going to come from, generally.
1: Right. And, and, and the idea would be that, you know, we want to minimize the surface area, of course, so we can minimize the forces that are being induced on the structure, but we still need to have a vertical structure. And it seemed like concrete filled tubes were the perfect solution because they're so much stronger than a comparable reinforced concrete column you know the shear strength is just so much higher and so we started thinking about this idea of of having an evacuation structure where you could have these upper levels you know that are above the inundation depth so that they're going to be they're not going to be subjected to tsunami but these we might have the lower two levels be what we might call quote unquote sacrificial they could be parking They might be a large atrium, you know, or maybe retail, not where people are going to need to stay after a tsunami. And we would let the tsunami flow through that part of the structure and not have these large walls that are trying to sustain the load, but have a concrete-filled tube structure instead. And so so that's sort of where the idea came from, from the, the structural... Design side, you know, was to really say, no, we don't want to take what we've done in earthquake engineering and apply it to tsunami engineering. We need to think of a new way of designing structures and a new type of structure. And concrete filled tubes are not used for buildings very much in this country. They are used in Asia, uh, China, and Japan, um, and Korea use concrete filled tubes, but we don't tend to. And, and the
0: timing is right now for this type of thing. I mean, like I mentioned before, there's a lot of, of attention being paid. Um, and vertical, uh, vertical evacuation structures are being built and designed now. And, and they're going up. Um, there's a lot of interest across the state of Washington. Uh, we have the, the elementary school, I uh, believe it's the Acosta Elementary School, that is the first vertical evacuation structure um, in Washington and perhaps in the United States. Or in the yeah, yeah,
1: I think um, it, there are some evacuation structures in Japan. But. Right,
0: um, and and so, um, you know, the the as I understand it, they they didn't want to pay for a new elementary school, and as soon as they added that they would turn the gymnasium into the vertical evacuation structure, that the city approved um, a, a slight sales tax increase, and so people are interested in this. Oh wow, um, and then relevant. Um, uh, government officials as well. I mean, I've been working uh, some with the Emergency Management District, uh, with Department of Natural Resources, who have really been, you know, some FEMA reps. They've really been focused on, on evacuation, um, you know, getting people to high ground, because you know, here in, in Washington, you know, adjacent to the Cascadia subduction zone, where we would expect something that, that could look very similar to what we saw in Japan. Um, when you're on the coast, um, there's just, there's not a lot of time to get out of some of these places. I mean, you know, we've got areas that are, are um, you know, on long peninsulas, things like that, where if you start trying to get everybody out in 45 minutes, it's just not, not going to be a reasonable thing. And so getting people to hide ground, there's a lot of interest in that. And so I think that for us, you know, if we can go and, and, you know, provide any help with some of these projects. Um,
2: that's really what we're interested in. That's awesome. So you're doing... Computational work as well as testing on this. Um, where's your your research kind of focusing at the moment? Yeah. So
0: so you know, Don mentioned some of the testing and that type of thing. My work, um, I have I have primarily been a numerical modeller, um, and so my initial work with the bridges with uh, Mark Eberhardt and then our other colleague Pedro Arduino, who's a, a co PI on this particular project. Um, his expertise is on. Uh, soil modeling and and we extended that to debris modeling. So I have been looking at the fluid forces. He has been looking at modeling some debris impacts, that type of thing. And so we've been building these models over the last number of years. Uh, And so I've kind of settled into doing uh, three-dimensional computational fluid dynamics models, which can be um, quite computationally expensive. And we're just getting to the point now Um, with the computers where we can really start to push the limits on some of this stuff. and That's where I have have primarily been focused, seeing how far we could push the limits, um, you know, kind of taking some of the simplifications that we've had, whether it's two-dimensionality or or, um, simplified geometries, things like that, and really start to explore some of this. Um, That combined with Pedro's work on modeling large-scale debris impact, trying to see how we can do some smaller-scale debris, debris fields, that type of thing, that's where we've been moving Over the last couple of years. And what Pedro and I are hoping to do as part of this project is to start building some models that are capable of of kind of simultaneously or as close as possible solving the structural reaction um, and the structural response to the fluid flow, which is something that is a a pretty big numerical hurdle. Um, You know, there's just fundamentally different ways that you imagine modeling a structure versus modeling a fluid right if you think about a single particle in a structure that's impacted that particle is only going to move um, ever so slightly if you think about a particle in a fluid right it has to be able to move uh, very quickly through most of the domain so they're very fundamental levels where you model the fluid differently from the solid and so we've been trying to think about ways to go through and do that and then also incorporating uh, the soil mechanics as well and how we might be able to do some of that so it's a big kind of wow. fluid soil structure interaction problem that, that is a, a, a pretty large research challenge for us um, over the next you know three years or so as we keep moving on this project that we're trying to kind of incorporate this all into a, I, I wouldn't say a single physical model, but something that we can go through and kind of exploit the different techniques that we've been using and map from one you know solution method to, to another.
1: So the research itself, um has essentially i would say four different components to it so what the concept with this vertical evacuation structure is that um the lower first story or lower first two-story slabs would have connections that would detach under large uh large quote-unquote vertical loads so um so that you know, the structural, the foundation is not designed to take a large upward force. So we don't want the, the water loading to cause, um, to, to put those forces on the structure. So we have two different connections that we're designing between the slab and the concrete fill tube. One is a, deta- a connection that will disconnect at a certain level. And um, the other is a seismic-resistant connection that will be used for the upper floors. So we're starting to look at doing experimental testing in our lab here at the University of Washington to investigate those two types of connections. Wow. Um, we're working with two different structural engineering firms at, uh, in Seattle. Uh, MKA and uh, Degenkolb engineers and they both both of those firms have folks that have expertise in either developing the ASCE 7 tsunami forces or um, designing vertical evacuation structures or both and so Mike and I have a meeting actually next week with Kale Ash who's at um, Degenkolb engineers here in Seattle and we're going to talk about designing a prototype building for this project. And then the idea would be that that Mike and Pedro uh, could then go in and take that prototype structural system and look at the interaction of the the fluid, the water, the tsunami, the soil, and the structure. And the the added complexity is that as the soil (laughs) Uh, goes away because it's the tsunami then right. the, the, the pile gets exposed so this again is another advantage wow. of uh, the concrete filled tube is because it has a, a lot more stiffness than a comparable reinforced concrete component because the tube restrains cracking so um, even with the loss of soil we still think we'll be able to sustain um, the demands so once we start looking at modeling that, and you know, after the design is complete, we're going to look at testing two different structures in the um, wave tank at Oregon State University.
2: Awesome. So we're going to
1: look at a conventional structure, which would be a walled structure, and then look at this new uh, concrete-filled tube structural system. That's great. And, and then that that data will then go and inform the modeling
2: and and
0: pedro and i along with some colleagues at oregon state uh just um this past winter so january through march uh got our uh our first taste of of working down in the large wave flume down at oregon state and so um we were able to work with dan cox who runs that facility uh and andre barbosa a, a faculty member down there and put together um, a 10-week experimental program looking at some of these concepts of, of the fluid impacting a structure, some debris impacting a structure, get some experimental results to start some initial validation or further validation of our models um, as we lead into this. And so having a little bit of experience down there, we're excited to get back down into the wave flume, start doing some of these tests. Um, you know, now that we we kind of know, well, I say know what we're doing, but know more of, the, more of what we're doing <laughs> than we did. Uh, you know, we were, we're pretty... Uh, amateur at that when we got down there but I think um, at least having seen it and, and knowing what to look for um, you know I'm excited to get back down into the flume
2: yeah that's an amazing facility I, I went out there um, actually about this time last year and they were doing some testing on a, uh, a raised structure with piles um, testing you know fluid loading on it It was pretty amazing the orange, <laughs> was it the orange box it was
0: that, that was us. <laughs> I was going to say,
2: that sounds pretty familiar. I'm like, huh, I think yeah. that might have been your experiment. <laughs> yeah. Yep, that was that was pretty cool to watch.
1: And, but in the end, uh, you know, we really are hoping that this this concept, the structural concept and, is going to be used and that the kind of <laughs> demands that we're seeing from the analysis will be used to update the... Uh, design codes, you know, to ASCE yeah. uh, seven design levels so that we are continually improving tsunami engineering practice, which really uh, relative to earthquake engineering practices in its infancy. So it's a, it's an exciting project for us to be involved with. And I, I think it's, it's going to be a really important project for the region that we live in in the Pacific Northwest. You know, ever since that New Yorker article came out, <laughs> there's a lot of concern about the impact that a tsunami would have in the Pacific Northwest, and and so um, I think, like Mike said, there that there are people throughout this region that have an interest in learning from this research, which is fantastic.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And um, offline, we'll have to connect you with our. Uh, the head of our technology transfer committee here at the the NERI NCO cuz they'll be very interested in uh, talking with you about your findings and, and getting those translated into practice as soon as you can. Yes. It you, always you takes longer to, than
1: yeah.
2: you think. Go ahead.
1: I found in general it's a decade.
2: Oh yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I from the time, you know, I start the research to the time it actually gets into the design code about a decade. So.
2: Yeah, that it seems like a long time but it it really isn't in terms of the amount of validation that has to go through before you're confident enough to put it into a code
1: right no 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 right it's so structural engineering is a, a different discipline you know i'm doing some work looking at uh 3d printing of fiber reinforced cementitious materials and you know there's all this excitement about 3D printing, but then when you start to think, you know, you look at what's been printed and you see all these voids in it, and you say, "Why? That's like that's not, not going to work for a building that <laughs> yeah. I expect to be around for at least 50 years." And so, uh, so it, it these technologies that people want to see applied to our discipline, um, they have constraints that aren't necessarily in other disciplines. You know, I I tell my students, you know, you're not going to develop the next iPad. Uh, but every single project you work on is going to be unique. And so you really have to have this fundamental understanding of engineering because, you know, we don't know what you're going to end up designing. That's not our job. Our job is to really teach you the, the fundamentals of engineering and for you to be able to go out and apply it uh, when you go out into practice.
2: Yeah,
0: The tsunami stuff is is somewhat interesting to me as well, because it's, um, you know, I I hear this from some colleagues from time to time, Um, we get one chance at this, because these return periods out here for these tsunamis are about 300 years or so. Um, The last Cascadia event was in the year 1700, so 318 years ago, so we are,
1: Okay. do so you know, if
0: we go silent here maybe we'll <laughs> yeah,
2: but, wouldn't uh, that be a whole no, whole and and, and fortuitous occasion
0: uh, yeah and then locally it's another you know long period of time so you get one shot and, and we're gonna you know, hope to do our best and make sure everybody's prepared
2: yeah that's a really good point to remember when uh, when we're talking about these things it's like as as difficult as the challenges are to get it into practice, um, quickly and, and effectively and, and doing it right. You got one shot to get, <laughs> get it as right as you can. <laughs> yep. Um, I wanted to ask just a couple more things before we wrap up here and over, we're, we're going long on time because we have been talking about a lot of amazing things. Um, when you're doing those full scale, full building testing, um, are you thinking about using instruments or like the uh, shake table down at UC San Diego? Um, or, or things like that to do really large scale testing as well.
1: So the, what we're doing in the flume is not full scale. What we'll test in our lab is is full scale, but it's a component. It's a or we usually call it a sub assemblage. So it'll consist of the columns and the slab, um, but it won't. if but what we in the flume. We're at about a quarter scale. The concept we had and so far we've had agreement from the folks at Oregon State University is that we're going to take our non-contact instrumentation system. we have an Op track system uh, and we would take that down and be able to monitor the movement of the structures as we're um, testing them they have, a lot of other instrumentation uh, that I think Mike is probably more familiar with because he's done testing at that facility, and I haven't. But uh, but we we know or that they don't have the kind of um, instrumentation that we typically use for for structural testing. We are we're not really going in and expecting to be able to exactly simulate a full scale building in the end. We really have to rely on numerical modeling to do that for us. Uh, but but we do want to be able to monitor movement of the structures, the, the two different structures that we're going to be evaluating, as well as movement of the soil so that we can go in and validate these numerical models. Yeah,
0: you know, One of the things I have been kind of harping on over the last couple of years is that we're getting to this point where um, we can do so much with the numerical models, and, and that's both a blessing and a curse. Um, <laughs> yeah. a, a blessing, because you can do stuff if you know what you're doing. The curse is that somebody sits down and says, um, well, now I have the computer capability to do this, therefore I know how to do it. Um, right. So what we need is, is kind of to, to make sure these models are actually doing what we want them to do, giving us the information that we want. Uh, and, and the flip side of that is that the... The only way people are going to trust our numerical models is if we validate them with experimental data, and oftentimes, um, you know, one of the, the frustrating things as a numerical modeller is that you're sort of left with uh, what an experimentalist determined was the important data, and that's what you get to validate your code. And maybe it's not, you know, what you need, what data set you need to actually feel comfortable with your code. And so, as part of this project, you know, but what Pedro and I have done um as sort of the uh kind of naive experimentalists for lack of a better term the is to come in and say what what can we actually measure what can we um look for that will actually help us develop these models and have more trust in them because um you know oftentimes like i said you're pulling a couple of pieces from a bunch of disparate data and saying see i i matched you know experiment f from um, you know, this paper and I matched figure four from this paper and, and therefore I think I'm good to go. And we're trying to get as much of it as we can in one experiment so we can say, see, this is a, a, a very multi-physics, multi-fidelity type of problem that we're going to need for these codes. Um, and so, so getting that all in one place has it really appeals to us.
1: Yeah. I, I, I would, I mean, I think that Mike is absolutely right. We've made some great advances in numerical modeling. And on the structural side, the issue can be that it's quite difficult to model non-ductal mechanisms. So in this particular case, um, we're looking at the potential of a punching shear failure between, in the slab-to-column connection. And so we really need to look at that experimentally and investigate some of the important parameters experimentally, then we can go into a finite element analysis program and be able to validate the model and then do a parametric study and extend that, so then we can inform our design expressions. That's sort of how I see things from the design side. But I have been burnt (laughs) a number of times (laughs) thinking, oh, I've got this. High-resolution finite element analysis of this particular experiment. I know exactly what's going to happen, and then you go in and test, and that's not what happens. And so, uh, we we do have the capability, but without the validation, uh, it, for me, it's uh, it's concerning to to completely rely on a numerical models alone. We really, t- without the validation, it's hard to know if you're if what you're modeling is is correct or not. And so we have this great opportunity in this project to be able to validate this advanced modeling that that Mike and Pedro are doing. Because I would say that the the modeling that Mike and Pedro are doing is much more complicated than the structural modeling. It's it's really tough.
2: That's probably some of the most complex modeling I've heard of. (laughs) Yes. Granted, I'm not as involved in this kind of stuff as, as you guys, of course, but uh, that is a really complex problem.
1: <laughs> right. And so you do, you just, you need to be able to say, you know, there are so many variables that can change in these numerical models. And So you need to be able to hone in and say, okay, you know, are, are, am I getting something reasonable? Well, you know, there are always these checks that you can do, but having experimental data is is really important and I've you know I normally I come in with my numerical models and I'd like to have 15 or more experiments that I can use to validate my modeling approach we're not going to have that luxury here although we are going to change different parameters so uh, we will be able to to look at at uh, different aspects of the way the the soil the structural uh, configuration so
2: that's great yeah i'm looking forward to seeing uh, what happens with those experiments going forward um before we wrap Me up too. here uh yeah i can't it's gonna be really cool uh i'm i'm really excited to see what you guys come up with out there and um since it since it's happening at uh, oregon state it'll be all the data will be up in design safe so we can look at it later and Uh, show it to show it to the public really quickly. It'll be really awesome.
1: Yes. That's our hope. (laughs) Yes.
2: So I wanted to ask you before we wrap up here, we're coming up on an hour. I want to respect your afternoon. I've got a lot to do um, with uh, all the projects you've got going on, but I think Mike has an interesting story about a experience with a natural hazard that uh, you guys mentioned before we started recording today. I was wondering if you would, uh, wouldn't mind telling us about that.
0: Yeah, nothing tsunami related, but I uh, <laughs> gro- growing up in South Carolina, we were, uh, I was there when the hurricanes hit the Atlantic coast as opposed to the Gulf coast. So I was uh, seven years old in Charleston, South Carolina when Hurricane Hugo hit. And, um, you know, now we're sort of used to knowing with after Hugo, we had Andrew and then everything in the Gulf, you know, and, and so people are well aware um, there was a I think a naivety amongst um, a lot of people in Charleston at the time when, when Hugo was coming. And so people stayed put. Um, you know, we, we knew the, the risk of the storm surge. So uh, my family, my my parents and myself uh, and my two younger brothers, uh, my youngest of whom was three months old at the time, we all um, just went to my grandparents' house because they had a second floor and we all crowded into a bedroom. Um I slept through the night. My dad slept through the night. Um, The hurricane hit, I think, around 11 p.m., so the power goes out pretty early, and you're just kind of sitting there in the dark. Um, The eye wall went right over top of us, so my grandfather went outside in the middle of the hurricane and assessed the damage halfway through and then kind of went back in, and they they, kind of just loaded up and then went through it. And I was talking to my mother over the holidays a little bit about it, She just was describing the scariest night of her life, just laying there, listening to 120-mile-an-hour winds in the second floor, sounded like a train going by for five hours, hearing the trees hitting the house, um, just kind of not knowing what to expect. She just said she laid there all night long, waiting on the roof to come off. And so um, fortunately, that didn't happen. And the next morning, we all got up and walked the mile from my grandparents' house to my house. And you don't know whether you're going to get there and you even have a house and you're climbing over trees. So it took us you know, an, over an hour to walk that mile. Um, I sort of hazily remember it. I may remember more of the home videos than I do the, the actual event. But uh, my parents said that all you could smell was pine, because all the pine trees had snapped and that the entire neighborhood smelled of pine. And you, But we got there, unfortunately. fortunately, um, you know, all the trees were down, but none of them had hit the house, and and so we kind of got our stuff together and we packed up. And it was, you know, I was seven, my brothers were four, or almost four, and or four and three months old. And so um, my dad was working in the grocery business at the time. He had to stay put, and so he sat in the house for two weeks, taking cold showers, uh, no you know, running the generator, oh, working. Uh, my mom and my grandmother and I, we packed up and went up to Columbia and bounced around hotels because you could only get what you could get. Everybody had evacuated. And so uh, my mom always laughs that she and my grandmother would go to the hotel bar for happy hour every day and give my brother and I a dollar <laughs> to go put in the bar so we could eat peanuts or whatever was there. But, you know, you're just passing the time. And, um it was a scary thing for a lot of people there. And it, it was a big wake-up call. And as a result, um, you know, you get out of town every time now. I know I can remember still sitting in the same spot for five hours, evacuating in 1999 from uh, a hurricane that was a Category 5 when it was 50 miles off the coast and it dissolved into nothing. But it, uh, it, it, it cost the governor the election that year because he didn't, didn't reverse. Didn't I mean, everybody knew. It had been 10 years and everybody knew. Get out of Dodge and it took us um, 12 hours to get the 90 minutes it should take up to Columbia and my friend and I got out. I know my grandmother was on the interstate for 20 hours getting wow. out and just, um, you know, that's the world you live in down there, but it, it does, it's an eye-opening thing and there's still, um, you know, still, still the, the, the images in my head of it growing up with it, so.
2: Wow, what a story. <laughs> I couldn't even imagine. I've been through a very weak hurricane when um, Irene and and Sandy hit our house when we were living in Connecticut, but I couldn't even imagine having a a Category 4 or 5 hitting our house, a direct hit. Gosh. Yeah,
0: it's, 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 um, I can, you know, one of my clearest memories is about two weeks afterwards, the, uh, you know, you put your trees on the side of the road for the trash to pick up and it was like, Almost like somebody had come in and built three foot high dunes along the edges of every road in every neighborhood as people slowly cleared away all their trees you could just you were driving down basically valleys all through the neighborhoods which was uh, just kind of a surreal scene
2: yeah I was down in um, Texas Rockport area after Hurricane Harvey hit helping out with the recovery with team Rubicon and when you're driving into town, that was where they had the most wind damage when it hit as a category Four, the median of the divided highway was filled with all that tree debris and house debris and everything for, I don't know how long it must've been. Maybe even maybe a mile, maybe longer. I don't know, but a long, long way. (laughs) Like you're saying, it's just surreal. Like that's just not supposed to be there. (laughs) Right. Right. So yeah, the the hurricane, you know, we don't, deal
0: with it so much out here but the the hurricanes are kind of a crazy thing because it's when I was working in Florida uh, I would do a lot of uh, field work down in the Keys and we were doing something right as one of the hurricanes came up and they're telling people to evacuate but you look at the path and they'd have to drive 30 hours up into essentially Georgia or Tennessee and the people say what where am I supposed to go you know (laughs) it's a crazy thing Um, you know because you
2: never know what where you're actually going to be safe so yeah that's true so this has been an amazing conversation and we're going to have to have you guys back on to talk some more uh, as your uh, research projects develop and, and especially to talk more about the life of a scientist and how you can balance all the things that you got to balance. Um, that part of the conversation is amazing and we could definitely talk more about it. Where can people go to find out about your research as you keep going on making these uh, amazing data sets and doing your testing and even maybe even before you publish, where can people find out about that? Should we plug design safe sure (laughs) i mean feel free please do
1: (laughs) yeah i i had a i actually have the first rapid project up on design safe after the tainan earthquake in taiwan Um, uh did so i did some reconnaissance with some colleagues at purdue university and uh all of our data is up there and actually i'm using that data right now in a Project trying to evaluate uh, ASCE 41-13, which is the standard for seismic evaluation and retrofit. So that's been kind of interesting. Again, it's I've I've done uh, reconnaissance in after Northridge and then after the Kobe earthquake, um, and I I find it to be I think Ellen Raffee said this on a previous episode of. Uh, this podcast but it's a living laboratory and I tell my students that you know it, you need to go to see it I remember in in Kobe they had these wooden houses with these very heavy tile roofs and there every single one had been destroyed and it, you felt like you were in a war zone and it reminds you how important the work is so um i the previous work i did which was part of knees which was the previous uh version of, of niri we I, all of our data went up on that um repository and we will actively put everything up on uh design safe and and typically we have a youtube channel with videos of uh testing i've been doing that on Prior projects, so and I uh, I'm, uh, have uh, put up. I put up most of my research publications on ResearchGate. Um, so yeah, and, and our
0: uh, we just as a department revamped our website, and our our marketing crew has been, done a very good job of publicizing the research that's being done when it's being done. So I would encourage. Um, you know, if, if people are interested to go to the, the UW Civil Engineering website and you scroll down, you'll see some of the cool things that are being done, not just by us, but by kind of everybody in the department. It's, they're doing a very good job and really pushing that.
2: Excellent. Thank you very much. for those. Oh yeah, go ahead.
1: A little, a little plug for the University of Washington is if there are students out there that are listening to this podcast and they think that the only way that they could ever do research is to get a PhD. They should know that at the University of Washington, that's not true. We fund master students to do research. In fact, one of the students who's doing the uh, slab column testing on this project is a master student. So we encourage them if they're interested in the program to get in touch with us and to apply.
2: That's awesome. And another really good thing to plug is the uh, uh, research experience for undergraduates that are at all of the NERI sites I don't think there's going to be one of the rapid this summer since it's just getting started. They may correct me later. (laughs) But uh, even undergrads can get in on the action uh, at least over the summer at the NERI sites. And if we scared you off with all this tsunami talk in Seattle, just
0: remember we're structural engineers and we live here.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's one thing to be, um, you know, informed of, of the danger and know what to do with it. And and be able to live with that risk and, and know what to do when it comes, whether it's tomorrow or hundred years from now. So you guys know what to do.
1: Yeah. Preparedness is the key. Yeah. Because, yeah, we are excited about having the rapid facility here. So uh, we think it's, there's just a lot of good things happening in the natural hazard engineering community now.
2: Absolutely. I, I can't wait to come out and visit you guys um, at University of Washington once the rapid uh, gets their equipment up and running and, uh, starting to do their, their work this summer, definitely planning on coming out there. So we will have to grab a coffee or something, not from your uh, your, your office coffee in there, Mike. No, <laughs> we'll good. get you some good coffee. <laughs> hey,
1: you come out here, we'll get you some Does good the coffee. Does job. I'm not going to sleep
0: for another day. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you again so much. Uh, Mike and Don, you guys have been absolute pleasure to talk with, Looking forward Before
0: to we uh, go, keeping uh, in touch. I told my toddler I would tell him hi, so hi Jack.
2: <laughs> Hello Jack.
1: Well, <laughs> oh, that's unfair. Hi Claire. Hi Alex. Hi Colette. There.
2: Well, we've got a we've got an Alex at home as well. So. Oh, you
1: I mean,
2: do. He Good hasn't day. listened to our podcast yet, actually. Have yep, Alex and Jane at home. We got a four year old and an almost two year old now. They're they're fun, fun but fun. a little crazy.
1: Well, my oldest just started driving,
2: so. <laughs> oh man. <laughs>
1: I know it's hard to believe, but it actually does happen.
2: <laughs> yeah, it goes by fast. It'll be tomorrow. He'll be asking for the keys. <laughs> yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: All right. There we're we're going to go be, ahead and stop recording okay. here, but.
1: There won't be any the keys. Yeah. There are
2: hardly any keys now. Well, yeah. Or the, yeah. The fob or goodness knows what it's going to be in uh, 12 years when he's ready to drive.
1: Yeah. Hopefully okay. I'll still have
2: my manual transmission car so we can learn how to drive stick. <laughs>
1: for having us yeah
2: thanks so much Dan you're, you're very welcome you. it's been my pleasure thanks for listening to today's episode for Design Safe Radio this show is sponsored by the National Science Foundation and NARI. you can subscribe to Design Safe Radio on iTunes Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts please leave us a review so that we can improve the show please also help others find our episodes in iTunes thanks for your feedback and your support you can find out more about NARI at designsafe-ci.org on Facebook at Design Safe Radio, or on Twitter at Nary Design Safe. Next week on the show, we'll talk with two scientists from the Mount Washington Observatory in New Hampshire about their work at the home of the world's worst weather. Thanks for listening.